Thank you all for coming. Um, I'm Simon Hicks. I'm the chair of the uh, event this evening. I'm the head of the government department here and professor of European and politics. The event is part of the European Institute's Perspectives on Europe event series. Um, it's a book. It's sort of two things. It's a book launch, a launch of this book. Go buy your own copy afterwards and you can get it signed. And it's also a discussion of some of the key themes and arguments in the book. Uh, there's a hashtag for the event, for those of you who are so inclined, hashtag LSEEUGov. And the final thing to say is the event will be recorded, um, so anything you say will be held against you at some point in the future. Uh, let me first introduce the panel this evening. So I'm going to first say a few words about what I think are the key takeaway points from the book. Then we're going to have three speakers talk about um, their view of the book for about 10 minutes each, and then Marika, the author, will respond. So first of all, we're going to have Dame Helen Wallace, Emeritus Professor at the LSC, and perhaps, well, I wouldn't know perhaps, certainly the most distinguished scholar of European politics in the UK. Um, then we have Luke van Medlar, who is author of The Passage to Europe, uh, historian and philosopher, and also a member of Van Rompuy's council, uh, sorry, Van Rompuy's cabinet, president of the European Council, although he's not here in an official capacity. Then we have Duncan Schneidel, who is a professor of international relations from um, another university in the UK, from Oxford, sorry. Um, and uh, as a professor of international relations, his work has focused on uh, particularly formal theories rational choice models of institutions. So he has a very different perspective on some of the questions addressed in the book. So to kick off, let me just say a few things about what I think are the takeaway, I take away as a scholar of EU politics from the book. So I three things. First of all, um, I think the book is a very much useful contrast to where I think the study of the EU has been heading in the last decade or so, and it's been partly my fault that it's been heading in that direction, which is to focus on formal institutions, the formal rules of the game, the formal rules of procedure, the formal legislative rules, who has a gender-setting power, who has veto power, the voting weights in the council, the rotating presidency, um, how the, these formal rules of the game in Brussels influence policy outcomes, how political bargaining takes place. And I think this is a very healthy antidote to that, what I think has partly become the established wisdom in textbooks on the EU and also in, in the teaching of EU politics. And a reminder to us that a lot of what happens in the politics in the EU, as politics everywhere, is, goes on behind the scenes and is, is about informal relations between actors, informal processes, informal power asymmetries and informal rights and rules. Um, the second key takeaway related to this is then an emphasis on what actually takes place in these informal um, meetings in terms of the bargaining style that takes place and an emphasis very much on trade and on exchange and on informal agreements. You get, I'm willing to support you on these issues in return for you supporting me on those issues and this is through these informal processes is how consensus then gets built. We often observe consensus on a lot of issues and we think that consensus has been created because the rules require there to be consensus or, or there is consensus in the shadow of a perhaps majority vote in the council because nobody wants to be seen to be on the losing side. But, but I think what this tells us is, or this approach to EU politics tells us that consensus emerges through other means, often through informal trades across 
policy issues. So one member state uh, cares about a certain issue that's on the agenda, another member state cares about another issue, and they'll do some informal bargain. And through the relationships that they've built up, very much informally, they're able to enforce this bargain. Whereas if you come from my world, you'd say you couldn't enforce it, because you take a vote on one issue, and the next issue comes up and you say, well, I got what I wanted on my issue, so I'm not going to vote for you on your issue. So, so this tells us that that actually doesn't take place. What's also important from this point of view is, and this comes from my work that I've done on other regional integration organizations in the world that are very much not as formally structured as the EU is, but tend to work. So, for example, ASEAN in Southeast Asia has a set of formal rules that have absolutely no, bear no relation to the actual practice of what goes on in the governance of that organization. So I think, in some senses, this, this approach to thinking about how states in supranational settings actually do business might be very fruitful in exporting beyond the EU to some of the other regional organizations in the world, where, where actually the formal written-down rules don't really accurately describe the type of politics and bargaining that takes place. Finally, the final uh, take-home point then, I think, is for me, is the emphasis on personal connections. Personal connections between actors, between individuals, between heads of government, between politicians, and a reminder that politics ultimately is personal. And, and th these personal relations can be... We, we think right now about Angela Merkel very powerful figure in the way the EU works. There's nothing written down on paper that says she's the most powerful politician in Europe. If you believe the EU rules of the game, the Commission is the most powerful actor. They have a monopoly on legislative initiative. No other actor can initiate legislation. Therefore, the Commission must be the most powerful actor. Well, clearly, politically, that's not the case. And deciding, for example, who's going to be the next Commission president... You know, formally, the council votes by qualified majority vote to propose somebody to the European Parliament, and the European Parliament will vote by a simple majority on the nominee of the council, European Council, for the Commission President. And so, therefore, you could say that um, the largest group in the European Parliament has this very powerful role in deciding who the next Commission President would be, and that's the kind of thing I argue, right? But it's clearly wrong. Clearly, um, everyone talks about who, who Angela Merkel wants to be the next Commission President. And one of the key candidates, Martin Schulz, who's the candidate of the Socialists, a lot of people are saying that Angela Merkel doesn't want this guy to be the Commission President. She doesn't want a German to be Commission President. She doesn't want a Social Democrat to be Commission President. And ultimately, if Marika is right, then he won't be Commission President. And if I'm right, he will. So well, let's, let's see what happens. Anyway, over to you, Helen. Thanks. Um. Thank you, Simon. Um, Marika, it's a pleasure to be able to take part in the discussion of the issues that you raise in your excellent, provocative book. I'm going to identify myself, perhaps not surprisingly, in a slightly different way from the way Simon introduced me, to say I'm the grey-haired grandma. And both points are relevant. Um, being grey-haired means that my own memories of an engagement with European integration and the study of European integration go back over several decades. The first treaty reform process that I know something about was the Sorry. the first treaty reform process that I know something about was the reform process that led to the 1966 merger treaty, which most people in this room will never have heard of, um, and is certainly neglected in the literature. And I was taught about that by Emile Noel, Secretary General of the Commission, 
who taught a course that I followed with great interest, um, in which he told us what the treaty articles said and what the formal rules were, and also told us what happened. So I start my connection with this subject um, very much persuaded of the informal side of politics. And, but it makes me say something else, and that's the grey hair bit. I'm very pleased that Marika has been so attentive in her volume to tracing the experience of earlier decades. It's not history to me. I think it's what I lived. But I'm totally convinced that we need to understand that history if we want to understand the underlying dynamics of European integration. And it's very nice that we have Luke van Middelaar on the same panel because his book also goes back and explores legacies of earlier decades. Um, and I hope that this means that we can now say there is a historical term in the study of European integration. Some people might want to give it a fancy title and call it diachronic analysis. Never mind that. But I'm totally convinced that there's lots of documented evidence for us to uncover. And Marika Kleiner has explored very valuably part of a much, much bigger iceberg. Well, I said I'm a grandmother as well. Grandmothers are supposed to know how to suck eggs. So as I said, I always started with the premise that in the European Union, as in other political processes, whether intrastate or interstate, what happens is the outcome of both formal rules and informal, informally developed practice. The surprise to me is not that informal governance is a key feature of the European Union. In this sense, I don't think Marika has discovered something, and that's not meant in any sense as a criticism, but rather that it has been so much neglected in the literature, especially over the past 20 years or so, um, and Simon has many people complicit with him in, in, in a different turn to the emphasis on formal rules. There is a literature, and it's clear both from Luke's book and from Marika's very well-documented book, that some of that literature from earlier decades did explore aspects of informal governance. And I'm, but I think what Marika is seeking to do, and I very much hope she succeeds with this, in trying to find more robust methodological and analytical underpinnings that will enable those of us who are often accused of simply doing thick description at least to find a place as providing some of the material from which Marika and others can do more systematic aggregation of evidence. Marika's book urges us all to do much better in this regard, and I hope it will provide many people competing to fill in other parts of that jigsaw. As I read Marika's book and as I've thought about today, um, I've thought also about one or two ways in which the approach might be developed and extended. Marika's book is titled Informal Governance, but she concentrates on only parts of the process of informal governance. She particularly focuses on the norm of discretion, a norm of discretion which is mobilised to avoid risks of defection and non-compliance. Spot on, spot on, but other informal practices have made and continue to make 
important contributions to what happens. And let me just give some examples of that. The first is that informal practices have enabled experiments to be made in different ways of seeking and developing collective action in the European process. It's too long a story to try and tell here, but it's quite clear that there were such experiments that laid part of the foundations of what we now know as economic and monetary union. There were experiments which led to the way European foreign policy cooperation developed and experiments in justice and home affairs. And those are only some examples, but they're quite important ones. Second thing that informal practices have, have enabled, they've enabled evolution to occur outside and beyond the formal rules, sometimes, but not always, subsequently then incorporated in the formal rules. Just to give a very technical example, and it's a real example for nerds, if you look at the rules of procedure of the Council of Ministers in its different versions since it was first established, you will see as, in, as, as you explore the layers of, uh, and peel the layers of the onion, the way in which informal practices start to get embedded in different formal rules. And that's interesting because I looked the other day at the formal rules of the European Council, which of course used to have no rules of procedure at all, and has now got procedures, um, which Luke will know about, based on an accumulation of informal developments. Third thing, informal rules have also bred some very important differences in the way decisions are taken and policies are developed between sectors and across sectors. Here my own analysis differs a little bit from that of Marika, who concentrates, I think, a little over strenuously on the so-called community method. She knows very well that I take a more differentiated view and to cut a much longer story short, recent evidence of policymaking, you see I'm <laughs> involved in editing a new, book, new edition of a book, the recent evidence of policymaking shows an increasing prolixity and promiscuity of different ways of taking policies forward within sectors as well as between sectors. Let me just add very quickly one or two other points to conclude. First on the workings of the Council, Marika talks about the consensus um, practices in the Council, and Simon has referred to them. I would love to be able to tell you a story that I'm not able to tell you. Um, Daniel Nowrin, who's doing work on Council decision-making in recent years and has not yet published, and it's not for me to tell you his story, but only to say that the, the, the evidence that, and data that he's uncovering seem to be showing an interesting increase in explicit contestation. I'm sure Sarah has been following this as well. And it may be that the norm of consensus, which forms such an important part of Marika's well-documented argument about the past, may be less robust in the future. Second observation, the norm of discretion to accommodate potentially non-compliant member states, particularly larger member states, sure, what we also need to explore is how other member governments hide behind the vocal and more aggressive potential defectors. Marika has a nice case study of the Working Time Directive, which British uh, ministers have had a very hard time with. I think I'm right to those 16 member states which have derogations from the Working Time Directive. 
but without being in the doghouse. The last thing I wanted to say about potential reasons for non-compliance. Um, Marika's talking in her volume very persuasively about the way in which the potential for defection, non-compliance, being awkward, arises from domestic pressures and nested games. Yes, of course. But let me just stress, and I think it's there in Marika's, um, in Marika's book as well, very often those pressures arise from extremely well-mobilised corporate interests. That's the end-of-life vehicle story that Marika talks about. Marika mentions light bulbs in the preface. It's a corporate interest story about light bulbs, and it's about Siemens and Philips. Thank you. Uh, yes, I would also like to thank Marijke for inviting me to speak and for having written this marvellous and, and very inspiring book. Um, maybe following Helen's example, I'll also mention briefly why I have a special interest in the informal rules of European politics. I had the great advantage of when I first arrived in Brussels... 12, some 12 years ago as a trainee I did not a single I did not know a single rule I was, I was just a, a philosopher, political philosopher studying in Paris, very highbrow stuff and then I ended up in the private office of a, a Dutch commissioner and first I saw some of the practices around me and only afterwards I started to read the textbooks and there clearly was a mismatch uh, just as there was a mismatch between the story uh, that is told in and from Brussels and which the Commission was telling at the time and the stories about Europe you can hear in, in various capitals. After Brussels, I worked for two or three years in The Hague, in the Dutch Parliament. And clearly, um, the Europe, the way it was perceived, even in, among national parliamentarians, was a very different one from the one you could... In, in Brussels, and of course that is even more the case in, in, Brussels, in, in London. Now, I'm going to try and briefly mention four points I particularly liked about the book, and then three or four wider comments and reflections which it opens up, but that will, will stretch no doubt into the discussion. First point I liked is that I, I fully agree with Marika's emphasis that on the combination of both the formal and the informal. You can only appreciate a deviation of the rule if you first have the rule. And one of the reasons why the European Union is a pretty strong organization tying all these member states together is that this bond of the treaty is very strong. It's a very fundamental rule. And all the informal governance around it uh, makes it work. But as I described in, in, in my own book, The Passage to Europe, sometimes it may seem that it's not the rule itself or what it says which is important, but the fact that it exists, the fact that all today 28 governments sit around the same table and are forced to take decisions, uh, which then opens up this, this game of, of, of negotiation and, and dialogue. A second great merit is that 
in this book is that it's much more work to study informal practices than just read treaties. Um, make me think of a joke of a, of a classic historian who, who specialized in pre-Socratic philosophy because you could read all the fragments in a, in a week. <laughs> and then you had your whole body of knowledge and you could start thinking about it. And, and Marijke indeed has done, as, as Helen also pointed out, some, some marvelous case studies like this working time directive, which I also liked, and, and, uh, and, and many others. Now, where I also feel very comfortable is in the book's interest in a, in a point where legal rules reach their limits. And that's often where the politics start. And you focus a lot, Marijke, on the aspect of unpredictability. You cannot foresee the effect of a rule, the cost of a rule on different groups, and you may want to accommodate complaints, etc., later on. So you focus a lot on the unpredictability downstream of the decision. But I think it would be interesting to also look at, as it were, unpredictability upstream. Because why do you take, have to take decisions in the first place as a collective body of states? Because things are changing in the world around us. I mean, in the end, politics is about dealing with change. And... Um, so it's not, unpredictability is not a problem. That is the, the very reason there is politics uh, as such. But this, this, this sort of edge between the legal, the formal rules, and, and, and political space is a fascinating one. And you have a marvelous quote by Robert Marjolin, which I'm going to read out because it will be uh, instructive. Well, you have to know, Marjolin was a high commission official, uh, commissioner, sorry, in the uh, late 1950s of a modest French upbringing, but extremely bright, um, and he made it to vice president of the, of the first European Commission under the commission president, Walter Hallstein, who was the second character in this, in this short quote, who was a German professor of constitutional law, but more of a uh, very indoctrinaire, uh, I would say. Now, here comes the quote of Marjolin. I would often use the word reasonable to describe a project or a proposal that seemed to me not only to be consistent with reason, but also to have qualities of moderation in a good sense. And then Halstein, his, president, his commission president, would object. I don't understand what you're trying to say. Alstein would say. What does reasonable mean? An idea is either rational or it is absurd. <laughs> there is no intermediate term. So what Halstein, I would say, is in the world of, of the legal, the purely legal, whereas the word reasonable, which Marjolin uses, opens up a space for politics, for dialogue, and brings, even if they, they cannot be made explicit beforehand, its own standards. Because not everything is always reasonable. We are not in the purely arbitrary. Um, to, give, to give one, one, one recent example from my experience, and you all, all read about it in the papers, the famous European summit where David Cameron vetoed the treaty change in December 2011 when the Eurozone countries wanted to have stricter rules on budgetary discipline 
and the British Prime Minister wanted only to sign up to it if he got something in return for the British city, for the city, London city. In the circumstances, when the Eurozone was facing basically an existential crisis and, and urgently to solve its problem, and Cameron came only up with this request at the very last moment, so not allowing time for discussion, this was not considered to be reasonable. Mm. Even if afterwards, of course, it was a big victory for him here in the UK, for the public opinion, but, but there you, you saw that there are limits also sometimes to, to uh, this, this decretionary and to the, the willingness of other member states to accommodate everything. A fourth point um, is what Marijke shows, and what, which I also fully share, share, is how member states collectively have seized the agenda. And this helps also to break down a little bit the academic uh, binary distinction between either people focus on the institutions and on the supranational reading, or people in the so-called intergovernmental school who focus on interests and on capitals, and then very often on individual capitals. Or, whereas what you can see in, in, the, in, the, in the history, and in this indeed 60 years old history of the European Union, is that the member states jointly have seized the agenda as a, as, as, as a body. And one of the places where you see it, and, and you, you, you speak uh, very, very well about it, is the rise of the European Council as agenda-setting policy body. In the treaty, it says the Commission has the monopoly of, uh, of initiative for, for, for legislation. But as of the 1970s, the heads of state and government were not completely comfortable with that situation, and they, they started to meet, and then these meetings became more or less formalized in the European Council in the 70s, and then only uh, five years ago, the European Council became a formal institution. <coughs> and I would argue, because you have fascinating chapters on the Council presidency, that this figure of the, the judge, the person who is capable to judge whether uh, the questionary measure is, is, is justifiable or reasonable, evolves out of this this idea of member states uh, altogether. But this example brings me to, the, to my four, briefly, uh, points of, of wider questions. And this first one is on, again, on the word politics. Um, you describe all this as formal versus informal. Whereas I, I was wondering whether at, at some points it might make sense to speak about legal versus more political. Especially if you have this, this changes over time where many informal practices are later on formalized, such as the European Council now being an official institution, etc. And if you then only say, well, now that is formal, that is too simple because in the process the European Union has changed and it has become more political in the sense of being more of the Robert Marjolin kind of logic than of, of, of Holstein, being more better equipped to deal with interests, with uh, mood swings in public opinion, with all these kind of uh, elements of, of political life. And I don't think that the distinction formal informal can in itself completely uh, take that into account. Also, I think a, a, a nuance 
which could be useful is <coughs> to understand that deviation of the of the rule is not always a negative project, uh, um, aspect. Well, you, you also say it. But, I mean, people, also people from Brussels or from the European Parliament, they may portray the, the work of national governments as uh, delaying things, watering down, carving out exceptions, so making things worse. Whereas in the process, what is happening is that all these national administrations and governments are engaging all the time, and they take ownership I don't like the word very much but of, of the whole process they, they become co-responsible as it were for Europe, and they appropriate it themselves, so it, there's also a positive dimension to this Now one question whether, which I will leave to the next speaker is whether the EU is just another international organization, which you seem to imply but I'm not fully convinced, but that's, that's, that's another type of question and the final point, opening to a, to a wider question is that uh, you rightly describe the EU as a, or the, you say it about the Council, as a, as a consensus machine. And maybe it's true for the European Union as a whole. And it is the informal governance which, which has helped this, because it helps to organize such policy out- outcomes that there are as many, sorry, as few losers as possible. Eh? Nobody should lose. There should be no defeated parties after negotiation. And this, on the, this is good for public, for its, the European Union's public legitimacy, but also in a way bad. It's good because it allows us to, indeed, to, to use to these uh, Hessian, uh, what was it again, uh, wine, apple wine producers <laughs> who, who now have, still have the right to call their juice wine. But what you lose, also in terms of public credibility, is, is, is readability, is uh, the price the governments pay jointly is opacity, mm. um, which may uh, fuel distrust. And I found very perceptive the way you describe how even the European Parliament is, is victim to this game of creating opacity. I don't think many people have, have said that before. Now, for, for, for future questions, um, one is, and Helen also touched upon it, that you basically carve out the European Union as building a market. Um, because there is there's the most documents about, about the European Union being and building a market. But of course in the past 20 years the European Union has precisely changed and doing now much more other things like foreign policy uh, dealing with migration and of course the euro. And in the process the center of gravity of, position, of, of political decision taking has, has, has shifted. And also the relationship with, as I said before with, with uncertainty because it's now already, in a way, embraced more or less upstream, because foreign policy is nothing else than dealing with, with, with uncertainty. And um, so it will be interesting to reflect further on, on, on that, on, on European countries' capability of dealing jointly with this in crisis moments. And, of course, in the Eurozone crisis, we have seen that Europe is, is very ill-equipped to deal with crisis and to take this 
discretionary decisions which require speed, where you cannot dialogue for hours and, and produce white papers if, if you have to deal uh, in, decide in the course of a weekend about the rescue package for Greece or things like that. And another more uh, wider open question is how far the notion of, of the reasonable can, can, can be stretched and whether this, um, whether this would require a sense of community which is not always there. So these are some comments for a, a very good uh, book which I hope will inform many uh, readers and uh, future research. Thank you, Luke. Thanks. Thank Evening. Well, first I'd like to thank Marika uh, for inviting me to, to talk about this, and, and it forced me to really go over her book carefully, uh, although that may not come out in my presentation. Um, and I, I should start off by saying I'm not a Europeanist at all, so I, I uh, learned a lot about Europe, uh, but I also can't verify the Europe side of it. And so my comments are much more trying to take it perhaps out of area if you think the EU is not an IO international organization, uh, but in any event, taking it to organizations in general. I, I should say one thing that I, I like about the, the argument is it smells right. Uh, if you think of any organization, any club, any committee you've ever uh, been on, uh, and you think, what are the formal rules? First of all, you probably don't know what the formal rules are. But if you did and you asked, how did it really work, you would quickly come to the conclusion the informal things mattered in a, in a very big way. And Marika does that, at least uh, to, to my level of expertise, very, very nicely on the uh, European Union. She points from the Treaty of Rome how the Commission uh, has formal control of agenda setting, but in fact, the informal uh, practices of the European Council uh, condition almost everything they do. In turn, the European Council has formal voting rules, but in, in turn, the informal norms of unanimity drive that, that out. The Council formally delegates implementation to the Commission, uh, but in fact, member states have many informal controls. So formality, informality, going back and forth between the two. A cynic might look at this and say, well, the formal rules don't matter very much, but that's not the point. The point is that it's the formal and the informal operating together that matter, and it's the complementarity between the two. I want to point out that Marika, I think, focuses heavily on, on complementarity, and an interesting question is when are informal institutions substitutes rather than complements for that, which I think in, in a lot of international organizations, and I'll come to that later, plays much more of a role. Um, the basic story underlying this, is, as I understand it from Marika's book, is that this is all driven by uncertainty about domestic politics, that down the road, various things may happen domestically, and we need to leave room for maneuver for the member states uh, to manage that. And so it's dealing with that political uncertainty. Um, I think that's one important aspect of informal institutions, but I, I want to point, as I go along, to other elements that also drive informality, which are, which are not found here, uh, but are important, certainly in other areas, and I think perhaps in the EU as well. Before I get into those sort of more substantive things, I want to point out what's almost a philosophical or a methodological issue underlying all this, which is the basic question for someone like Marika using uh, rational approaches um, or for people looking at rules, is asking if we have informal rules, why don't we just write them down? And actually, if you want to think about it one way, if you have, a, if you have someone who's a good cook, can you just write the recipe and anyone else can cook it the same way? And what's the difference between the recipe, uh, the recipe follower, which I am, and what a real good cook can do, which perhaps doesn't even seem to need the recipe, need the recipe at all? Now, why don't we write them down? Um, for, first of all, it's important to say that sometimes informal things do get written down and they become formalized. Customary international law is a great example. We codify all sorts of customary law, and the codification changes and adds something to that. 
Uh, in the international setting, I, th- I think we can think of loads of examples of institutions that, that started out as informal and then become formal. ASEAN was mentioned earlier. That's an example of an institution that started quite informal, became more formal. There are many, many examples of that. Um, but many things, Marika argues, stay informal because informality uh, adds flexibility to the pot. But that raises the question, why do we use informality? Can't we achieve flexibility formally? And she points out, she's completely aware of this, uh, that we can write formal rules to make them more flexible, we can make them more complicated, or we can use uh, techniques such as delegation to a body to interpret the rules or apply the rules to allow exemptions, or we can write uh, exits and escape clauses directly into treaties, or Helen uh, mentioned derogation, which the EU has loads of. So we can, we can formalize many of this. And so an interesting question is, why do we formalize some? Why don't we formalize the others? Um, Micah argues, writes that governments refrain from codifying uh, the provision of flexibility when it contradicts the purpose of the institution's formal rules and more generally the rule of law itself. I don't think that's quite right, um, we, because in principle, we could write, look, you get enough lawyers in, you can write anything to be consistent with itself and to fit things if you can specify it properly. I think the reasons we don't write things down are, first of all, something that's very consistent with the tradition of Marika's writing is the impossibility of writing a complete contract. That is, we simply can't anticipate everything, so we couldn't write the complete contract, either ex post or ex ante. Um, I think the corollary of that is that the reason we can't write the complete contract is it's too expensive. And so sometimes maintaining flexibility and leaving things out of the contract is just a cheaper way to, to solve the problem in the first place. I think something she doesn't talk about, which is very important if you look at, at normal organ- international organizations, the EU not being a normal international organization, is states are jealous creatures and are devoid sovereignty costs. They, they don't like the idea of being controlled in any way whatsoever. I'm, I'm not perhaps the best person to judge how that what role that plays in the EU, but my, sus- my suspicion is it plays some role whatsoever. Uh, that informality keeps things close to states. A third reason that does come out a bit, but is important, is formal things tend to be more transparent. Informal things provide a way to be non-transparent. And that comes, very, uh, comes back in an important way to how we want to evaluate informality. And I'm going to argue that it's both an advantage to have non-transparency, and for obvious reasons, it's also a disadvantage to have non-transparency. Fourth, and I think America doesn't pay enough attention to this, informality may advantage the powerful. Uh, she, she addresses this, and I think she, she is more skeptical of, of that argument, but I think it's the standard international relations uh, suspicion would be when you get informality, it's the powerful benefit. And indeed, in the legal tradition, it's a fairly standard notion to think that institutions protect the weak uh, and that law protects the weak. I don't think that's always right, uh, but I think it's something we want to worry about in thinking about this. Then I think there are a couple of... of uh, answers to the question of why informality that go beyond so the frame uh, from which Mark or I look at that uh, and, and sort of push the bounds of rationality. The first close to that is, is the notion of bounded rationality, that, that the actors involved simply don't have the capacity to do this, and therefore they can't do it. And it tells us something about the nature of the actors themselves. They, they couldn't design or write the institution the right way. The um, one that even goes further than that is a claim, and this comes back to the recipe example, that there's something about informal rules that in some cases they are about things that inherently cannot be written down. Uh, that is, that we, it's a type of tacit knowledge. Uh, if you like that language, phrenesis is, is often used to describe this type of, of knowledge, that we simply can't do it, that things have to be left in the realm of practice to the politicians, the statesmen, so on and so forth. I'm frankly skeptical of that line of argument as to, as to how important it is, but I, but I think it's worth putting out there. And I, I think, as, as we said earlier, one thing it does is it leaves things in the realm of politics, 
Uh, that is, things aren't going to be decided now where we have a settled set of rules according to which to play things out, but rather we're going to leave them at play. He'd, one of the tensions whenever you talk about formalizing institutions, think constitutions, think law. In some sense, those are attempts to depoliticize things, to get them out of the realm of politics and get them into the, the realm of law, administration, so on and so forth. So one nice thing about thinking about informality uh, is that that's where the politics are, and the politics are very important. Uh, in that setting. Of course, formal things as they're being created and when they're in, being contested also involve votes of politics. Let me then say a few things about taking this into the um, international setting more generally. And, and here, uh, the EU is clearly the, the exceptional international organization. It's by far the most institutionalized. I think there's a real question whether it's better treated on the international relations side or treated as an incipient state. And to that, I, I don't think, I think theory crosses over the two. We don't have to decide that, but I think we want to be aware of that when we're thinking about that. Uh, in some of my own work, I've tried to look at informality at the international level. Um, and there, it sometimes is a complement to formality, but sometimes it's a substitute to formality. The preeminent example right now are the G groups that are springing out, uh, the G4, the G5, and pick a number, G, put a G in front of it. You, you have an international organization these days. Um, and they're used especially to deal with a lot of the financial things. The financial crisis is very important, other economic issues, tax issues, but they become general forms for states to get together at a fairly high level to, to discuss issues in really quite a political setting. Um, one thing that's important to note is power is directly at play here. Uh, that is, these are negotiations, often between heads of states or very senior figures. And indeed, the membership of the G group itself is all politics. It's the G7 or G8. It's some small number of countries who are going to rule the world uh, and bring in the minimum number. The expansion of the G20 cause they, was because they needed them. Uh, with no other reason. And it's, I think, an interesting question down the road whether the G20, it won't, won't be disestablished, but whether it will be used as new prices come along. And if we can get away without them, I think it will probably be not used. Um, or if we look at, at other sorts of organizations, if you look at how we deal with chemical weapons. Um, here, so so in, the, in the G group, actually, I, I should say, that partly that, it's, it, when the G, G groups at one stage were, were being used to substitute for the formal organizations, the IMF was in real trouble before the financial crisis. It was sort of becoming irrelevant because states didn't have to use it. It was saved partly by the crisis, and, and there we see the G groups being used to direct the IMF and a complementarity development. So there's both substitution and complementarity going on here. If we look at uh, how we manage chemical weapons, the formal organization is the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons. And there, everybody's included, the good guys and the bad guys. We want Syria and we want Iraq inside the OPCW uh, so we can boss them around, put some rules on them, and so forth. On the side, though, is the Australia Group. It's called the Australia Group because it meets in the Australian Embassy in Paris on an ad hoc basis. It basically is the good guys, the guys who are trustable with secrets and things. And they get around, and they play a major role in trying to figure out what they're going to try to force on the series of the world in the OPCW, going back and forth between the two uh, on that. A lot of complementarity. It's not just powerful states who use them. So, for example, if you want to set up non-powerful states, the Alliance of Small Island States, that's an acronym for countries that are going to be underwater if global warming keeps going on, uh, have used an informal organization to publicize their plight. It's sort of been a, a power resource, a limited one, but they're very limited in what they can do. Or if we look at the BRICS, that's an attempt of a set of emerging powerful countries who probably are underrepresented in the forums of the, of the world to turn an acronym into an actual organization. We don't know yet, but they've actually had some preliminary success in doing all that. If we look at, at why we get informal organizations in, in some of these other settings, uh, one reason is very close to Marikas. It's uncertainty. But the key uncertainty, there, domestic uncertainty does matter here, but often the key uncertainty 
is international uncertainty, common shocks. The financial crisis is a good example of that. It states in a similar problem together, recognizing you're going to face problems they can't anticipate up front and trying to deal with the uncertainty on an ad hoc as it comes basis in a much more flexible manner than they could through the IMF, which is a very unwieldy bureaucracy. Much better to do that in a G group. So flexibility is an important role too. Maintaining sovereignty, to keep things in a G group, you really can control it. There have been actually proposals to, to formalize the G groups, formalize by actually having an office, having a mailing address, and that's been resisted. This notion that to do that would actually start to put some boundaries and constraints on this that we don't want. Uh, the, the resistance to formalizing some of these things is striking, although some of them do become uh, formalized later. Another reason is power. And if you look at how these groups are used, especially the G groups, it's the United States behind them. And it's, it's trying to organize its power on the international system in a way that it can control quite closely. It can't control it if it goes into formal organizations like the IMF or the World Bank or the UN. Um, now, none of, the, none of this undercuts what Mark has done at all. But I think what it does do, and it's one thing I like about the book a lot, is it pushes us to try to generalize beyond her analysis of informality and ask how might it play elsewhere. Let me then close then by uh, trying to, as Marika does in the book, by trying to play out some of the normative implications of this, perhaps in a slightly different way than she does. Uh, and she ends by talking about power in the final chapter, and then also about the democratic deficit, which of course is a standard Bohemian uh, of the literature. Um, now, I agree with Marika that, that um, informality doesn't always benefit the powerful or always benefit the poor, that it goes back and forth. But I, my suspicion in general, and perhaps especially in highly institutionalized settings, is that these informal rules are going to benefit the powerful a lot. Uh, and I'm, I guess I'm not persuaded they don't, that they just have more resources in terms of being able to leverage other states and get what they want uh, in those settings. Moreover, the, a key differentiating feature of formal versus informal organizations, uh, and one thing Rebecca does is overcomes in some sense, is they're hard to observe. She, so she does a lot of work in the book to try to observe the informal. Well, the informal is inherently hard to see, and that's one of the things going on. But it also means it's inherently hard to control. It's inherently hard to know what's going on in it. Decisions are made by actors who aren't formally authorized to do so. They do so on their own behest. Those decisions affect other actors uh, who may have no say in those uh, decision whatsoever, and they probably affect them adversely. Now, Marika argues that rather than focus on the legitimacy deficit, the democratic deficit caused by the decision-making, we should focus on the benefits provided. There's an agree completely with that. There's, if you like, call it an output legitimacy coming from this. But the output legitimacy may compensate for the democratic deficit or the deficit on, on the other side, but it doesn't get rid of it. And there is a real deficit there in those, those situations. Um, now, it's important to remember that we like those sorts of deficits in many of our institutions. We have institutions all over that are non-democratic. Constitutions are non-democratic. Central banks are non-democratic. Courts are non-democratic. Go down the list. Non-democracy is one of the key features, not complete non-democracy. But we do care about them being controlled, but often the control is at some remove. And so I think we have to ask, how far is the remove? How close is it? And, and what's going on inside all these things? As I say, my instinct is to be very suspicious of informal institutions for that reason, even though I, I applaud them and I think they're really important to have, but I think we should be very wary about them. But let me then just conclude by, by applauding Marika for writing a book that I think raised a whole bunch of questions. And I think I would, and I mean this truly is a compliment, it's not in any way unhanded, that, that this is not the final word uh, in any way whatsoever. But boy, it's a bunch of really good first words that certainly for people like me raises some questions and, and I can think of no better outcome for a book. So thank you, Marika. <laughs> Okay, your chance to respond. Shall I go to the podium? 
Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, thanks all for, for being here to my book launch, but also thanks to the speakers um, and the EI to making this, uh, European Institute to making this happening, and Lucia for organizing this event. Um, well, I, I, I knew when I finished the book that um, it probably raises just as many questions um, as I try to answer. But, uh, gee, I didn't know it raises that many questions. So I tried to answer some of them, um, but uh, perhaps have no time to, to discuss, um, to, uh, to address all of the points. But first of all, informality. Um, so not many of you know that I sort of have a very short, but um, at least I have a previous life in policy, and um, I worked for a think tank. And at the same time, I was um, beginning my doctorate, and I was just struck by how worlds apart these different uh, different worlds uh, different worlds are that they seem to be talking about uh, completely different things. And so I just um, I thought that uh, there must be something to explore. This uh, this can't be true. There must be an explanation for why there's so much informality in the European Union and other international organisations as well. And in my um, <clears throat> explanation, this is because. Um, Informality allows for reasonable decision. It gives you flexibility in order to accommodate those that really have a problem with the decision. And in this sense, I think um, there is a point to make, Duncan, that uh, some institutions or some practices simply have to remain informal because if you legalize it, you sort of put a straight jacket on this rule, not only... Um, in what the rule dictates what should be done, but also because if a rule is legal, um, if it's codified in one way or the other, then you also have to interpret it in a certain way. You have to interpret it according to legal standards. And uh, what the European Union does and where it uh, deviates from the legal rules is um, it interprets these legal rules in political ways. And uh, this means sometimes in this way and sometimes in this way. But the main thing is really that it provides enough flexibility to make everyone happy and therefore also keep sort of a lid on the salience of EU politics to make it not as controversial as it otherwise, uh, otherwise might be. Um, following on that point is... Uh, is the European Union an international organization or not? And this is also perhaps just as much a philosophical question as the question about informality. But I think one important point about um, any kind of institution beyond the state level is that uh, it gives you outside options. It allows you, because you're, you're not a citizen of the EU and that uh, allows uh, where the EU, you cannot leave the EU, um, if you have outside options, you also have power, and this is the case in the European Union, um, both individually and collectively. So one example that I can give that really struck me when I looked at the records of the 1960s was that um, the, the European Commission really wanted to participate in, in some council meeting. And at that point, the governments were really suspicious of the commissions and, and said, no, you know, actually we prefer you stay outside. We do this behind the closed doors. And the commission said, well, here, but look at the rules. According to the rules, we are supposed to be here. We are also supposed to propose some legislation. And the member states said, yeah, well, when, if this is the case, then we just meet before the official council meeting and call this an informal meeting. 
and you have nothing, you know, uh, you don't really, uh, you need not uh, be included. And so therefore, collectively, the member states have outside options. They need not follow the formal rules, and therefore they have a lot of power um, in terms of what the Commission and um, other actors can do and uh, cannot do. Um, but there's also individual outside op options. I mentioned the case of the Ebelvoy, um, which perhaps not, not all of you are familiar with. Um, probably a good thing because Ebelvoy is a ghastly thing. But there's a, there's a case <laughs> I describe in the book um, which is about how a proposal from the European Commission for sort of a new definition of wine it actually would have um, ruled uh, out the, the name Ebelvoy um, because they, they had to the, um, agree on some complicated definition of what wine is and suddenly the Ebelvoy no longer counted as a wine. And the Ebelvoy producer, so Ebelvoy means apple wine. Ebelvoy producer in the state of Hesse, they were really on the barricades and they said this is impossible. You know, we're, we're losing our market recognition value and this is a cultural asset. And unfortunately, this proposal was uh, leaked during a very, very important election in the state of Hesse. And of course, this thing, this issue exploded. And uh, there were demonstrations on the street and everything. And there were even calls to pull the state of Hesse out of the European Union, <laughs> right? which seems ridiculous. But in principle, uh, things like this are impossible. And even if it's not outright leaving the European Union, there is the possibility simply also to, to just obstruct um, the implementation of EU law, and this is also a source of power, which leads me to power, finally. I entirely agree that um, power is something that I, I sort of neglected. To me, informality kicks in when there's the domestic controversial issue. Um, but of course, it's much more uh, important to sort of keep the lid on domestic anger in a large member state than in a small member state. But what I really wanted to point out is that what an exit option is for a powerful state is nothing that can be sort of economically defined and predicted. What an exit option is for the state, or for one or the other state, is also to a large extent determined by its pol domestic politics. So, for instance, an economist might argue that Greece you know, has no option, options in the current crisis. But this doesn't mean that uh, the domestic uh, politics plays out in a way that indeed they stay in the, Europe, uh, in the Eurozone, right? Um, domestic politics has its own dynamics, and therefore there's a much larger range of options available just depending on what kind of government um, has power in, uh, at the domestic level. Finally, um, about transparency and legitimacy. Um, I sort of yeah, perhaps overemphasized the, the benefits of informality, but of course, in reality, informality is a, is a mixed bag. On the one hand, you sort of you make the European Union work. You also include, perhaps, those into decision-making that might otherwise um, have been neglected. But at the same time, you make things absolutely obscure. And it's very, very hard because of all these informal practices in the European Union to really know who's accountable for what decision and why. And this is, of course, a problem, but I don't think that, therefore, 
um, increasing transparency simply solve the issue? Um, we speak a lot of, uh, about transparency and making, making the EU more accessible to the citizens. But in order to do this, we really have to know why government, governments sort of shy away from the light, a little bit like cockroaches <laughs> whenever there's light you know, on council decision-making, they just go somewhere else. And a friend of mine who works for the council told me that since there's more transparency in the council, you can actually get the minutes and you can even watch it on TV, now the lunches um, between these council sessions, they sometimes take about four or five hours just because now all the important things are decided over lunch because they don't want to, to be on record for what they say. So before we actually think about reforming the European Union, we really have to know you know, why, um, why informality exists. And I guess those are probably sort of the future research avenues that I haven't really talked about very much in my book, but that I'm still really interested in. Um, power, how does informality relate to power? And also, what about transparency? Is it a good thing or is it a bad thing? Very good. Okay. <coughs> I suggest that we, we open it up. We've got about 20 minutes um, Anyone got any questions they'd like to ask anyone on the panel? Have we got a roving mic? Yeah. Try and take a couple of questions if we can. Do you want to say who you are first? Um, Hermione Mackay. Um, Sorry, what was the first name? Hermione. Hermione. Um, you mentioned um, power there, um, and I just wonder, with recent enlargements in the union, um, for perhaps weaker states joining, um, what kind of specific effect does it have on them, those informal practices, or indeed what effect do they have on informal versus formal practices? Good question. Over here. Tom Hale, University of Oxford. One of the reasons institutions tend to like flexibility is because the real world often changes faster than institutions can change, and this is obviously a big problem for lots of international organizations today. But it strikes me that the European Union, one of its exceptional qualities is that it's uniquely good at updating its formal rules. The scope of changes in the rules is enormous compared to other international organizations. And so there we would expect less informality, or at least we'd expect the formal rules to be better at catching up. So do we see that in the European Union? And if not, then what is really driving the informality? Let's take one more. There was a guy here. Philip Price, UAC's member. Um, I'd really like to just make one point. Um, I completely concur with a point made by Professor Helen Wallace at the start in terms of the importance of the historical legacy uh, the historical developments of the European Union, because I noticed I'm basically a uh, baseline historian. Um, my first qualification is history. And I've always looked at everything from a very clear historical perspective. And I noticed that a lot of contemporary writers and political scientists often overlook very critical periods in the developments of the European Union. In particular, first of all, the um, legacy of the Hague Summit of December 1969 which completely altered the whole course of the development of European integration and cooperation in terms of rejecting, in a sense, the legacy of 57, the Treaty of Rome structure, and moving um, basically towards informal intergovernmental 
uh, cooperation. Of course, you know, in terms of the legacy of the Luxembourg and Copenhagen reports in the early 70s, and of course the inception of European political cooperation with its informal machinery effectively um, paralleling the, the, the community structures. And of course everything was fed in to the um, European Council sessions. And in a sense, it was a tacit agreement upon the, the then members of the European community in the 1970s that a lot of problems would arise, a lot of political issues would arise with political spillover, domestic political spillover in terms of attitudes, negative attitudes, and everything would have to be brought ultimately up to the European Council sessions. And in this sense, of course, really a whole new phase developed in terms of really, in a way, sociological um, uh, sort of uh, socialisation in many ways in terms of to establish a new kind of agenda, new rules of the game, not to push things to the limit, but to back down, to have the ability to have informal sessions behind the scenes. And this is an important legacy, I think, of the 1970s. Um, and uh, I think this is often overlooked by contemporary authors. They, they tend to be very, very dismissive of that critical period from uh, the December um, Hague summit to December 1969, through to the, really, the early 1980s. And suddenly, we suddenly leaped to the single European Act of, you know, 1986 and, and everything else and there. But the real critical period was the uh, early 1970s. And also, we can also look back to an earlier legacy of the high authority. One must never under, underestimate the influence of Monet, um, because Monet has often been caricatured, grossly caricatured, especially in this country. Um, in terms of many anti-European sentiments. But Monet was a very sophisticated figure. He'd worked in China in the interwar okay. period. And there's a legacy there in the earlier period. Great. So, um, enlargement. EU is pretty good at changing its formal rules and emphasis on informality. Is this a sort of back to the future moment, back to the 60s and 70s, and emphasising the power of informal processes then? Who wants to go first? Um, your good question about new member states. There was a very, the statistics on voting in the Council of Ministers in 1995 are completely bizarre because the Swedish ministers hadn't understood that this was the European Union and not just any international organisation and kept voting when they didn't agree with something, which is supposedly not what people did. And they learned and in this sense was socialised into the pattern. Um, in the case of the more recent joiners of the European Union, and there are other people in the room who can, can, can bear me out on this, quite a lot of exchange of knowledge and understanding had happened between existing member states and people in the new member states. And indeed, it would be quite interesting, wouldn't it? Marika has a reference... Um, in her book to a publication which I don't think she's seen, which is the, um, <laughs> the UK Presidency Handbook from the 1980s, uh, which was full of guidance on how to operate the informal rules as well as the formal rules. Um, and some of those familiar with those such booklets were indeed involved in helping to educate people from countries like Poland. Just on the... Um, the treaty change question. I mean, the European Union does have a tendency to OD on formal rule changes. Um, and I guess, but this is just, I'm just throwing out a thought, that the rule changes that tend to work best are the ones that have been trailered in informal experiment first. And some of those that turn out, it's a hypothesis, that turn out not to work so well 
are ones where people might have paid more attention to informal experience. Look. Um, just one other point on, on uh, new member states. It's interesting that when a country has signed a treaty to become a member, they're not yet a member formally. Usually there's a few months or can be half a year in between. But their, their ministers, their head of government, others are already let, allowed in the rooms, basically without a vote, without a say, but to accommodate, to get to know the rules, to get the feeling of the club. So I think there is a, an awareness of this need to, to sort of introduce uh, new members to, to, the, uh, to the unwritten uh, rules of, of life in the European Union. Uh, just one comment then on related to the reference to uh, the 1969 summit which started in a way the more systematic involvement of heads of state and government in European policies. Following what I also said in my, in my comment, this is not only about formal versus informal, but the fact that back then, and, and they've never let it go since, heads of government felt the need to be more closely in touch or to have a stronger grip, if you want, on what was decided in Brussels, is also a sign that they were actually taking it more, uh, more seriously than before. It was a sign that European politics or what was going on in the European Union was not just something to be outsourced to your foreign minister because it was foreign affairs and some experts and ambassadors, but was something which concerned vital domestic matters like agriculture, industrial policy and, and so on, but that was already the case in the 1960s. So it is a, also a sign in a way, in my reading, of a political maturity and that the issues uh, enter the scene domestically, and that is a process that has never stopped since. So, Duncan, from your point of view as an international relations theorist, doesn't changing the rules, the formal rules, suggest that the EU thinks the formal rules actually do matter? Well, it could be the bureaucracy keeping itself busy, I don't know on that. Um, so, in, in terms of Tom's question, I think it's a really good one. I, I, I think that the defense for Marika's case is that it may be the, the rules they can change can affect what she's focusing on, which is domestic uncertainty. That is, that, that, that she's arguing it's very hard for to construct those sorts of rules, and that's what does it. So these other rules, and this would be an empirical question, what are the rules about? Are they able to come home and, and um, deal with these things? So, so I think that's where I would try to answer that. On the question about small states and uh, informal pressures, I, I think, first of all, I think Marika's answer emphasizing the exit options and the strength of the exit options is really a nice move. It's a nice theoretical move that pulls together the EU with other organizations. So I, so I applaud that. My hunch in these small states is they have no exit option. They're, I would imagine the domestic politics, you know, governments depend on staying inside. They just can't get out, for the, at least for the near term, they're tied into it. But I actually wouldn't look at exit options there. I think that, that here we'd want to bring in a lot of other informal practices and such. My hunch is these small states and again, I don't know much about this at all, but they just don't know their way around. Uh, and, and there's all many, so many other points of leverage that other states will have over them that, that I think they're stuck. There's not much they can do. 
Um, yeah, I'll try to be to be brief. Um, about the effect of enlargement, um, it's actually re- very interesting that at least up to a certain point, um, not many people found that enlargement actually mattered very much. Or, well, it mattered a lot, but not for informal practices. That decision making, um, and Helen actually can can talk in much much more detail about this. Decision making seemed to have been really interrupted. But I think what will be the really interesting question in the future, at least from my perspective is um, to what extent the politicization of the European Union is now disrupting these informal practices because everybody now looks much, much more closely and also media has uh, come to pay attention. And it will be interesting to see to what extent this politicization, perhaps it's a good thing, right, in in terms uh, from Simon's point of view, uh, some say so. Um, But uh, it might also just simply lead uh, lead to the breakdown of certain routines that have been sort of the oil in the machinery. Um, about the, the uh, Tom, thanks very much for the question. Yeah, the, the European Union, um, as Helen so nicely put it, ODs on formal rule changes. What is really interesting, though, is that um, they change exactly the same rule, o- rules over and over again. So it's just really about a very small subset of rules that uh, the last uh, treaty changes have been about. Yeah, I would just say one final thing on, on the enlargement. I mean, I've seen other research on the council uh, by Sarah Hagerman, one of our LSE colleagues, and others to show that it to, that suggests that enlargement to 27 member states has led to far more formalisation of rules of procedure in the council. Um, for example, they used to have the tour de table amongst 12. That's pretty easy. You go around the table, everybody says something. Once you've got 27, you can't have a tour de table. So now you have to have a set of rules about how exactly you're going to have speaking time, who gets to make proposals, how you do the amendments. And so the council, as a result of enlargement, has actually had to become far more formalised. When you were just a club of six and then up to 12, informal practices were pretty... You could govern through informal practices. Once you get to 28, it's much more difficult to govern, hence the formalisation. People have made similar arguments about the growth in the size of the political groups in the European Parliament. When there were small groups, the leaderships would just get together and govern themselves. When they get to be very big groups with 100, 200 members in the biggest groups, they now operate like parliamentary fractions with proper rules and procedure about how they're going to govern themselves. So bigger groups tend to lead to more formalisation of rules, and I think... So, I, I, you know, I don't know whether that's, this would challenge some of the things we said. And I think we've got time for a couple more questions. At the front here and then over here. Uh, Richard Bronk, European Institute. Thinking about upstream uncertainty, to use uh, Luke's terminology, one of the main causes of uncertainty is, is innovation, and innovation in, in policy in particular. And it seems to me the EU is extremely good at policy innovation. I mean, think of the euro uh, as the prime example of this, which has caused massive uncertainty. It's turned on its head almost all established wisdom in banking regulation, economic governance, and so on. So my question is, is it partly because the EU has been so innovative that it has more uncertainty and therefore needs more informality? Hi, Sarah Heyman from the European Institute. Um, I won't talk about anything on the formal side uh, and think that, Marika, you're doing such a great job in pointing out why the informality is so important. Um, But I do wonder that in the same way as we've seen these changes in the formal rules over time, any one of you on the panel, I would like to hear your take on... um, 
what, how informal governance has changed as we've seen these changes in the formal rules because is it really that we're talking about informal governance today in the same way as some of those points in time that have been highlighted and we are obviously looking at a different EU setup altogether um, politically, uh, culturally, etc., etc. And what does that do to to the informal governance um, dynamics that that you point to? And I think what is most compelling with the questions you want to to raise, um, Marike, is why is it that it's necessary to look at these? Um, dynamics. What are the results? And I think that most importantly, what are the consequences for the interests that shape policy making? And I think that those are, are things that I haven't yet heard addressed so explicitly. Okay, so we've got uh, how the informal governance rule proceed processes have actually changed over time and then actually informality allows for policy innovation. I like to think of this as never underestimate the, the, the ability of the EU to find a way to muddle through, <laughs> which is an informality allows it. So one minute each, and then we're done. Helen. Um, I'm sure policy innovation creates uncertainty, but I think there are many other sources of uncertainty, so it's a bigger question. Um, I mean, Sarah's question about change over time, part of the reason why I think the history turn is a good one, if it is one, is to be able to do kind of stratification over decades and look at different kinds of informal developments and see whether they continue to show the same features or change and, and how that, that, that works. And I think people who do contemporary political science are often not as assiduous as they could be with primary sources from earlier periods, which is one of the great strengths of Marika's contribution. Look. Yeah, just on the on the question of uh, uncertainty and the way to deal with it, what I wanted to say with this upstream uncertainty is that it requires more speed to deal with um, in the crisis situation. And indeed, the euro is is one you could say it's it's a policy novelty which has created crisis, but there have also been foreign foreign policy crisis, of course. And it's just a whole different type of decision-making. And um, it re- you could even say it requires a different kind of legitimacy because you, you cannot draw upon the rules. If, I mean, what, what do you want to do with Ukraine? You're not going to look in your treaty, uh, in your Lisbon treaty, uh, and to find an answer to, to that type of question. And so that, that changes decision-making and also the, the legitimacy required for, for such decisions. Thank you. Duncan. On the upstream uncertainty, I think the interesting question here is whether the uncertainty isn't of a qualitatively different type. As Mike is focusing on this domestic uncertainty, and the upstream would seem to be much more collective uncertainty that's faced together. And so the thing I'd look for is whether we see the informality being done collectively together rather than being done individually separately and being processed differently on that. Um, and how's informal governance changed? I, I certainly don't know empirically. I think the, the interesting question for me is, has the EU just become so much more uh, expansive, intrusive, whatever you want to say, uh, who are the actors being involved? And, and, and who are the informal actors having influence and, and such would be where I would look first at that and, and looking in particular at private actors who are able to penetrate these things and play an important role. Last I got the last words. <laughs> okay, great. Um, Richard, on, I think... 
where the European Union is most innovative in its uh, way of, politi- uh, of, of decision-making is that uh, the way it makes decision is just so incredibly enmeshed with domestic politics. There's really no international organization haha, um, in, in the world that really has such uh, um, a great uh, domestic, uh, uh, domestic impact. And I think this ultimately then leads also to this is, this is where the uncertainty comes from. There are so many different equilibrium that can result from this that you just need some way to deal with this. But I also think that in this sense, um, the European Union actually hasn't changed that much, Sarah, over time. I think, of course, important new actors have arrived, such as the European Parliament, but I think in its, in its main, in its core, um, the European Union has pretty much stayed the same in that it is a commitment to a very, very deep level of, um, of integration where decisions can be taken against your um, current, myop- perhaps myopic interest. And I think in this sense, um, the European Union is innovative, but it's also, it hasn't changed really over time in this sense. On that note, it just remains for me to thank the panellists and to thank you all for coming. And just to say before we thank them that uh, Marika is going to stay here on the stage for book signing. So if you have a copy of the book or if you'd like to go out and purchase a copy outside, Marika will stay here and you can file up and she can sign the book. So thank you very much.